And if you're staying here and you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to Titus chapter 2. Whenever I say Titus 2, because of our background in Sovereign Grace, we think women's ministry. (laughs) The Titus 2 chapter is about women's ministry. It's actually about a whole lot more than that. As we're going to see, it speaks to everybody. Um, We're finishing our series on the virtues that have shaped our denomination over the years. When you believe in the sin-bearing death of Jesus on the cross, when you really own that good news, it shapes your life. It shapes your attitudes, your convictions, and there are certain practices that emerge. The ones that we've talked about so far in this series are humility, joy, gratitude, encouragement, servanthood, and generosity. Those are the things we want to maintain, that we want to grow in as fruits of the gospel. But today, we're going to finish the series with the virtue of godliness, which is about becoming more like Jesus Christ, ultimately. The focus of our attention is Titus 2, 11 to 14, but I will read the whole chapter because... Uh, I'm going to refer to a lot of it, but it all holds together as one topic. <clears throat> so let's begin. I'm going to read Titus 2, starting in verse 1, go the whole, through the whole thing, and then we'll pray. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, have nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
<clears throat> Let me pray. God, our Father, we come before you at your invitation to receive from you all that we need for life and godliness. We come in with our mess, with our various forms of rebellion in our lives, and yet you say in Isaiah, you spread out your hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. So we thank you for spreading your arms out to us this morning, for welcoming us in from where we're at to show us all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for your mercy to us, your generosity. So open our hearts to receive from you this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I entered the University of Wisconsin-Madison, in 1979, can you believe it? <laughs> Some of the older people can believe that. <clears throat> uh, my first year was mostly paid for by grants from the state because I was a poor farm boy. Uh, they gave me free money to go to college, so right away I paid my first semester tuition. Um, but I did more than that with the grant money. I also went out and bought a really nice stereo because I figured that was very important for getting through college. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to get through college without music, right? <laughs> for the younger crowd, a stereo, by the way, <laughs> is like a bigger, bulkier, and much better sounding version of your smartphone and Bluetooth speaker, <laughs> right? Like, I still have this stereo. It, they built things to last. Anyway, I doubt the Pell Grant people would have thought that was a good use of their money. <laughs> they gave me money to go to college to get a degree, to take classes, to get some kind of a useful skill that would benefit society. I doubt that they were thinking, well, here's a teenager who wants a stereo. I think we should like give him a few hundred bucks so he can have one. That's not what they were thinking they would do with the money. No, they gave it to me because they're thinking it's going into engineering. Engineering is very helpful. It was for my education. I didn't use the money for what it was intended. And we can do the same thing with God's grace. God's grace is his favor to sinners who only deserve judgment for their wrongdoing. It's like a Pell Grant in that it comes freely through faith in Christ, but he doesn't give us his favor just so that we can do whatever we want in life. His grace comes with an agenda. It comes with a purpose. And that purpose is in verse 11 and 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives in the present age. Godliness is a goal of God's grace, living a godly life. That's what grace is for. That's going to require some explanation, so let's do it by walking through verses 11 through 14 primarily. 
And then we'll see where verses 1 through 10 fit in because they do connect. So let's start with the first observation in verse 11. This is the starting point of the Christian life. This is the starting point of all real life full of joy and peace and a future and a hope. First observation is that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. It has appeared, bringing salvation. That's what verse 11 tells us. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is a beautiful sentence. (laughs) That is a beautiful reality. The grace of God, the favor to sinners who deserve only judgment for wrongdoing, it has come to us. God, God has brought it into this world in a way that it has appeared. We have this creator that we're accountable to. He created everything, including us. He created us in his image, and being an image bearer, it, it comes with certain responsibilities, certain privileges, which is to be like him in our thinking and our speaking and our way of life. We're to imitate him in doing good. We're to be loving him and loving our neighbor. But we haven't done that fully and faithfully in all things. And that's where the word salvation comes into the picture. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. That means we aren't what God intended us to be. We've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. That sin has made an offense between us and our God that has to be dealt with. God's justice for our wrongdoing has to be satisfied if we're to be restored to Him and His image restored in us. So salvation is that, that justice satisfied and our restoration secured. But how does it happen? How do, we, how do we get that salvation? Well, the grace of God has appeared, bringing it, bringing salvation. Now, what does that look like? What has appeared that satisfies God's justice and restores us to Him? Well, it's Jesus hanging on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's how grace appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because that is where the Son of God swapped places with sinners. That's where He took the blame and the punishment for our wrongdoing. That's where He satisfied God's justice for our offense to Him. That's where he restored us to God's favor. That is the grace that brings salvation to all who put their trust in him as our sin-bearing Savior. And if that describes you, then here's what salvation means for you. Forgiveness for all of your sins, past, present, and future. All your wrongdoing and your thoughts, your words and your deeds, God, our Creator, will not hold it against you. He has reconciled you to Himself. He is at peace with you. He is on your side. He always will be. Salvation also includes every promise made in the Bible to those who are counted as God's people. All the promises of God are yes, in Christ, 
promises that cover everything that you need. Strength in our weakness. Comfort in our sorrows. Wisdom in our foolishness. And so many other things. We, we have promises to get what we need through life. To get through life. And that salvation includes the climax which is eternal life. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a promise of God to you through Jesus. Salvation includes life after death, resurrected life, life in a new world, renewed. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus to bring you that. And you receive that if you put your trust in Him. This is for all people, it says. <clears throat> no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, whatever your background and baggage is, it's for everybody who just says, yes, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I need your grace, Lord. I need forgiveness. And Jesus brought it to me. Praise God. Thank you. That's for all people. So have you done that? This is critical. <laughs> this is life. <clears throat> Just receive it by trusting in Him. And it's all salvation. All those blessings are yours. But let's ask a question now. Does salvation only include those things that I just mentioned? Is it only about forgiveness and blessings and eternal life. Is that only reason why grace has appeared to us? No, it isn't. Because Paul continues to write more. This sentence isn't over yet. <laughs> he continues. The text goes on to say that the grace of God has appeared, training us to live godly lives. Here's verse 12 in full. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, God's grace is like that Pell Grant that I received from college. It comes to us freely and it saves us, but it's not like we can just do anything we want with it. Like I used the money to go buy a stereo. No, grace comes to train us to live in a certain way. If you're saved, you will live in a way that's consistent with having received God's undeserved favor to you. And that will look like renouncing ungodliness and living godly lives in the present age, in the day-to-day -day right now. It, it will change how you act and how you think. So let's see what that looks like in our lives. We're going to focus on these concepts of ungodliness and the opposite, which is godliness. And you find both of those in verse 12. First, renounce ungodliness. What's that about? Well, here's a definition of ungodliness. And I'll borrow this from the late Jerry Bridges. He wrote a book called Respectable Sins, which is a catchy title, but this is one of them, ungodliness. He says, ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, 
war of God's will, war of God's glory, war of one's dependence on God. Living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God. We might, we might say that in a short way, that ungodliness is no godness. <laughs> no godness. Uh, it's when God doesn't play any meaningful role in your daily life. You work your job, you have your conversations with people, you plan your weekends and your vacations, you parent your kids, you fill your downtime, and God just doesn't factor into any of that. None of it is shaped by the awareness that there's a God who made me, who has a purpose for my life, and who sent His Son into this world for my salvation. He's just not relevant to anything I'm doing. That's ungodliness. And you can be a very nice person and be ungodly. Because it isn't about overt wickedness, the doing of all sorts of evil things. It's just living as if God isn't there. And even nice people can do that. But ungodliness does lead to sinful activity because the other thing we are to renounce is worldly passions. Worldly passions refers to that unhindered pursuit of anything we want. If it feels good, it must be good, and so therefore I'm going to do it. And that lifestyle thrives in a mindset where God doesn't exist or God just doesn't matter. There's no boundaries, no guardrails, nothing I should deprive myself of. But God isn't okay with any of that. His grace comes to train us away from that. Teach us to renounce ungodliness. To renounce means to give up, to abandon it, to stop doing it. We renounce living as if God and the cross make no difference in our everyday decisions and actions because they do make a difference. God's will matters. Jesus dying on the cross matters. And we're not going to live as if it doesn't. That's the first work of grace in the life of a believer. We no longer are okay with never thinking about God. We're not okay with the sin in our lives. We want to change. And let me just point this out. The command is renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, not denounce them. Right? There's a difference. To denounce means to declare something as morally evil. But to renounce means we stop doing the thing that is morally evil. Us. In other words, the grace of God trains us to be more concerned with getting rid of our own sin than in calling out other people's sins. And here's the implication for believers. Isn't it tempting to just denounce the sins of other people and ignore your own sins either in your own heart? You know, just I'm just so aware of what everybody else is doing wrong, and I'm just always talking about what they're doing wrong, but there's not that, well, what about me? And so we just kind of let it go 
uh, either in our own minds, we're just running down a track about how bad people are, or we're like saying that to people in our text messages, and our conversations. Have you ever done that? I have done that. And here's the thing, it feels good to do that in the moment. Because it feels like righteousness to call out sin. And it feels, that it feels good because then I feel better about myself in comparison. That isn't driven by good desires. That is not what grace trains us to do. It trains us to be more concerned about what's going on in our own heart than in what's going on out there. I'm going to renounce what I'm doing. That's what we're called to do. Grace tells us to do that. That leads to the second half of verse 12, though, because you don't just renounce and abandon something. You have to put something else on. You go after a different thing, the opposite thing, and so that's where it keeps going. He says we're to live godly lives. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So if ungodliness is to live as if God is not there or not relevant, then godliness is the opposite. It's to live with this awareness that God is there, that He sent His Son to die for us, and that is totally relevant to everything in my life. And so my life is going to be Godward now. That's what godliness is all about. It's, it's Godward. It's living in His direction with the awareness that He's there and of His goodwill and of His salvation. That's what I'm going to do now. There's a Latin phrase that captures this attitude. It is to live coram Deo. I heard R.C. Sproul say that one day. I don't, I don't know Latin, but some other people know Latin. Coram Deo, which means before the face of God or in the presence of God, this awareness, He's there, and that matters. His will, His goodness, His power, His justice, His promises, His mercy, the sacrifice of His Son... These things matter, and they're so real. They are actually truth. And I'm going to live in the awareness of that truth and this God who made me. Godliness is living a life shaped by the presence of God who loves you and who means everything to you because of His grace. If I could use an illustration of how that dynamic works... I think of how my life was being affected when I was starting to pursue Mary as a possible wife. You may have read Proverbs 30, where the writer says, three things are beyond me, four I can't understand. And the fourth one was the way of a man with a young woman. It's like, I can't understand that. What, what happens to a guy when he starts to like a girl? Like, that is a way that I do not understand. <laughs> it is beyond me. It, it, things change dramatically in that environment. Suddenly, she factors into everything he does. Her presence shapes his life and his actions. So with Mary, I was totally aware that she was in the world. And I wanted to align myself with her and connect with her as often as possible. So I started doing things like asking her if she needed anything at the store because I was going to the store and I could just pick it up and drop it off. 
I mean, I would do this for anybody. I don't mean anything by that. <laughs> if, if we were going to do a group thing, I was all of a sudden very interested to know if she was going to be in it. If I said something that offended her, I was really quick to try and make up for that. Or if, she, if I said something that she liked, I, I wanted to do more of that. You know, I, I wanted to align myself with Mary. That's what it looks like when you live in a constant awareness of somebody who means a lot to you. And that's what godliness is in its essence. This constant awareness of the God who means everything to us. Because he gave his son to die for us. And that shapes what we do. We're motivated. We're compelled to live in a way that's pleasing with God. To live godly lives because he does mean everything. And that's why it's not consistent with grace to just do anything you want with your life. We might think that if God's justice is satisfied for the sins you commit... If, you're, if we know there's no condemnation for you in Christ, if we know there's no judgment hanging over our head, only the guaranteed love and acceptance of God, we might think, well, that if we have all that, then things like obedience to God's commands, pursuing a deeper relationship with Him, those things aren't important. They don't matter that much because, hey, God loves you anyway. Well, God does love you anyway, but He's not content to leave you that way. He intends something better for you. He intends to shape your life. He intends to train you for what you were designed to do, which is to walk with Him in godliness, in holiness, in His good will, to know and enjoy Him and to do the things that His image bearers were made to do and only His image bearers can do. And so why wouldn't you want to do that? So he's training us. Here's the good stuff. Walk with me. Walk in my direction. Be aware of me. Be affected by me. My will is good and perfect and acceptable. You're going to find that out. Yeah, sometimes it's hard. But that's because it's a fallen world. But it's the good stuff. I want the good stuff for you. <laughs> I want you to know me and walk with me. So... What does it look like to do that, though? Let me just say this before I go on. Grace doesn't make godliness optional. It makes it compelling. It makes living a godly life compelling like the effect that a young woman has on a young man. We'll gladly do what's pleasing to God because he's been so merciful to us in Christ. We will gladly align, align our lives with him. Grace helps us to do that. But what does it look like to align our lives with him? What does it look like to live a godly life? How do we know it when we see it? Well, let's talk about what godly lives look like. And a lot could be said about that, beginning with the most obvious answer, which is that it's to be like Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's the ultimate demonstration of what it looks like to align yourself with God and His will. To live in constant awareness of His presence and do only that which pleases God. Everything Jesus did shows us how 
we are to live. His way of thinking is our way of thinking. His priorities are our priorities. His attitudes are our attitudes. But our passage is full of examples that are attainable, that are kind of more like where you are, where I am right now. Um, what it looks like for us to live in our individual settings. And that's why we have verses 1 through 10 at the beginning. You might remember that verse 11 begins with the word for. For, or because, the grace of God has appeared, training us to live godly lives in the present age. In other words, what comes before verses 11 to 14 is the thing you do because... Verse 11 to 14, grace of God has appeared. Do these things because the grace of God has appeared, and that's what godly living looks like. So verses 1 through 10 are what godly living looks like. And uh, this letter, by the way, was written to Titus. He was this apostolic delegate that Paul left in charge on the island of Crete, where there were a number of churches, and he was supposed to install elders, and he was supposed to teach them the things that accord with sound doctrine. So that's Titus 2.1. He wants Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on for the next nine verses with instructions about what to teach everybody who are in these different categories of gender and stages of life. So verses 2 through 10 address older men, older women, younger men, younger women, some information for Titus himself, and bond servants whom anybody could have been in those days. Rome, first century Roman Empire, they all could have been bond servants, literally slaves. So there's a lot of information about what that looks like too. He tells each group what to do, what's a godly life for them. This is what the grace of God will train you to do. So what does it look like for the different groups? We won't go deep into it because of time. There's material here that could be fleshed out at length in men's ministry, women's ministry, youth and teen ministry, you know, uh, ministry to businessmen. There's all kinds of stuff in here. We won't have time to go through all of it. Let me just point out two instructions that accord with sound doctrine. These are two things that grace teaches us to be like. This is what godly living is. First, godliness looks like being self-controlled. Self-controlled. The quality appears four times in this chapter. It's dense with it. Verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. Verses 3 and 4, older women are to teach younger women to be self-controlled. Verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Verse 12, everybody live self-controlled lives. You get the impression that means a lot to Paul. <laughs> Self-control is a big one. Apparently, we all need to control the self, no matter who you are. Our temptations might be different in seasons of life and different genders, but the self needs to be controlled. And that's because the reality for every believer is that though you are genuinely saved from the power and penalty of your sin, we still have the tendency to sin. It still has a pull in our lives. It's like what Paul said in Romans 7, 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's this tension between God's will that you want to do 
and the habits of sin, the habits of flesh. But self-control is the mindset and the practice of staying within God's boundaries and going in God's direction in everything. Choosing what's good and beautiful and right because it pleases our God and Savior. So, for younger men, it might look like saying no to porn because that's a common temptation that's not aligned with God's will. It's the exploitation of women, and it feeds a desire for sexual intimacy with someone who is not your wife. And because of the saturation of porn in our society, it's also becoming more and more temptation for women. Nobody is immune from the lust of the eyes. But for others, it may look like saying no to habitual thought patterns that drag you down. Things like fear, worry, unbelief in the goodness of God, not trusting His promises. Uh, for others, it could be becoming cynical, jaded, seeing nothing good in the world, just only the problems. We all have these paths that our minds run down, but to control the self is to do what the psalmist did in Psalm 42. He took his soul to task, and he said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see what he's doing? He's like, all right, thoughts, I'm going to grab hold of you. <laughs> I'm going to take control of the self here. And I'm going to say, what are you doing? <laughs> Hope in God. <laughs> and then I'm going to go find a scripture that, that, that opposes what I was doing, gives me hope in the right direction. Like that's, that's the, that's the self-control habit. That's renouncing ungodliness and living in a self-controlled godly way. And the grace of God trains us to do that, to take every temptation, hold it up to the beauty of Christ, hold it up to scripture, and get strength to say no. And we do that, by the way, in the context of others, because this whole letter was written in the expectation that it was the church that was going to be doing this. Titus, teach this to the churches. They're going to be helping each other do this. Here's a second quality that shows up. This is another way godly living looks. It's speech that's befitting a follower of Jesus. Speech. Verse 3, older women are not to be slanderers. Verse 7, Titus is to teach with sound speech that cannot be condemned. Verse 9, bondservants are to be not argumentative. All of that has to do with the tongue, with our speech. What we say, what we text, has a great potential for good or for destruction, according to Proverbs, but grace will train us to do Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's truthful speech, not slanderous. It's sound speech. It's not the kind that can be condemned. It's winsome. It's not argumentative. Grace trains us to speak those way. And this is an area that we may not realize how important it is to our Christian witness. Because that seems to be the immediate context 
of these admonitions about speech and everything else, the reasons that Paul gives for all of these commands, sprinkled in verses 2 through 10, they all have to do with how Christians are perceived by non-Christians. He gives these reasons. That the word of God may not be reviled. That an opponent may be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. That in everything they, the bondservants, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Speaking about whether we're making Christian doctrine look beautiful or look ugly. It's true that the best examples of godliness in the world will still have people oppose us and have bad things to say about us. Jesus experienced that. But we're going to have people say bad things. If they're going to say bad things about us, let it not be because we gave them good reason for it. Let it not be because we're jerks. Let it not be because we're slandering, arguing, and letting our unfiltered, unsound speech pass our lips and our keyboards. Rather, let our speech be trained by grace to be gracious. And verses 13 and 14 reinforce this grace motivation for godliness. The reality that separates godly living from just nice living is that the hope of the gospel is what sustains and empowers it. So here's what verses 13 and 14 say about those who are being trained by grace. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are jealous, who are zealous for good works. So there's this blessed hope for the Christian, which is the second appearing of the grace of God, <laughs> based on the accomplishment of the first appearing of the grace of God. The grace of God appeared the first time when Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's what he accomplished on the cross for everybody who trusts in him. We're already redeemed from all lawlessness in our legal status before God. That's happened. That's past. We're counted blameless. But day by day, we're also being redeemed from all lawlessness in our actual experience as we renounce ungodliness and live godly lives. We're becoming in our experience what we already are in our status, which is a purified people for Jesus' own possession, zealous for good works. That's what the first appearing of the grace of God did for us. But there's a second appearing of the grace of God the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is when he's going to finish the job. <laughs> our great God and Savior, when he appears in glory, is going to complete the work of redemption by removing all lawlessness from us completely and from the world. And it will be permanent that's where he's leading us. There will never again be ungodliness in us to renounce. 
We will always live Coram Deo in the presence of God and in the light of His face. That day is coming, a day of His glory and ours. That's the blessed hope that we are waiting for, that we are conscious of as we are going about the business of zeal for good works and renouncing our ungodliness and living a self-controlled life. It's in the, in the bigger scope of that blessed hope that's coming when it's going to be over. The battle will be done. The purity will be real and thorough and permanent. And it's coming. If I could go back to the young man and young woman illustration, it was the prospect of marriage that played a major role in my aligning myself with Mary doing what would please her. There was this excitement of thinking that I could have her for the rest of my life, this prospect of consummation and oneness and walking with her always that was motivating to me. And We have something even better in Christ. We have the blessed hope of the consummation of the marriage between Jesus and His church, His bride, and the everlasting glory with Him and we're waiting for that consummation with eager expectation. And as we're waiting for that day, grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and live godly lives. So let me close with this. Grace doesn't make godliness optional. It makes it compelling. God's unconditional love and favor don't only make us they don't make us lax in pursuing Him. It's the opposite. Grace comes with a, an agenda to change us day by day into the likeness of Christ, into the freedom and beauty of what we were made to be in God's image, jo enjoying God, knowing God, walking with God. A purified people for His own possession. Isn't that a great vision? <laughs> and it's reality for the believer. It's coming, and we're on our way there day by day as we're, putting, as we're saying no to ungodliness and yes to God's will. We're, we're becoming more now, even now, like what we're going to be. So why wait until then? Start now enjoying what's about to come. Let the purifying work continue, and let's keep our eyes on the Savior and live with the awareness that He's there always. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for giving us such a worthy thing to live for and such a great hope that no matter what's happening in the world, our story never, it will not, it cannot end in just despair and darkness and nothingness. It, it, it ends with being with You in the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Help us, Lord, to just know that, believe that, have it affect us uh, for our joy, for your glory. We want to be more and more like Jesus in, our, in, in his image, and so help us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response about the shaping grace of God.
May the grace of God that brings salvation compel you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. As you wait expectantly for the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in His grace. <laughs>